Welcome back to That's So Second Millennium, episode 47. We have the great privilege today to talk to Father Terry Ehrman of the Center for Theology, Science, and Human Flourishing here at the University of Notre Dame. We're actually on site today, which is very exciting. Um, it means I can read lips. That always helps when I'm doing an interview. Uh, Father Ehrman teaches the Science, Theology, and Creation course in the falls here at Notre Dame. He also teaches theology and ecology. He's uh, just started that course this past semester. Was that my uh, second time? This is your second time. This is your second time. So that's that's very exciting. Someone is um, in environmental science as well. So yeah, uh, Father Ehrman's uh, subject matter is very much in the wheelhouse for our podcast. So uh, we'd like to uh, take it away. Start uh, start off with a little bit about yourself and you know your career, your your journey to the priesthood, and and from there. Sure. And I think it's all fitting to do this on the memorial of St. John Bosco, who did mm-hmm. so much with youth and education and was also publishing books and media type stuff. So he, I don't know who's the patron saint of pro- podcasters, but he could be in the running for that. He's, yeah, one of the candidates. So I think to invoke his intercession for this, this mm-hmm. podcast as we go forward. Great. And I grew up in Baltimore, Maryland, mm-hmm. which was it was not lost to me that that was the cradle of Catholicism in the United States. Uh, Maryland was the only Catholic colony. I like to say Maryland to emphasize Mary. Mm-hmm. Um, Baltimore, the first diocese of the country, the first archdiocese, the first cathedral, first priest ordained who was buried here at Notre Dame. Mm-hmm. Father Stephen Baden. There's a hall named after him. Oh, okay. On campus, he's buried in the log chapel. Well, the Notre Dame lore. I, I missed that bit. And. So I grew up in a Catholic family, mom and dad, three older brothers, younger sister, uh, and Catholic family, go to church every Sunday, that was n- not negotiable, right? you even go and travel somewhere, you're always looking for where's the, where do they have mass. Yeah. Um, in the broader sense of, you know, grandparents and aunts and uncles, right, just very Catholic family, my grandfather, my dad's father had been a Benedictine through the, his novice year, but then left, thankfully for me. <laughs> and my mom's brother is a diocesan priest in the Lafayette, Indiana diocese. Okay. He was a later vocation. He was ordained when I was in high school. Um, he was ordained in 1982. Mm-hmm. And so very much Catholicism and faith is very much in the air that I breathed. Mm-hmm. Um, in terms of my own vocation, it begins rather early. And I'll try and tie together priesthood and my interest in science, because there's two events early on that I think are moments where things began very early with that. So the first is, we do the vocation part, is when I was eight years old, we had just moved into a new house. Mom was pregnant with my sister. And sitting at the kitchen window, looking out of the backyard, I'm eight years old, and there are two things I said I was never going to do in life. I was never going to drink, and I was never going to get married. And okay. I really haven't done either of those two things. So okay. um, looking back with adult eyes, I look at it more as a call to religious life mm-hmm. uh, than priesthood to be somehow consciously celibate, though I wouldn't have known what the word celibacy meant at eight years old, I suppose. Mm-hmm. But to have a sense of not wanting to be, just never visited myself as as married and having kids. There's just this mm-hmm. aspect of being single, but I guess with a purpose and a mission. Mm-hmm. I, I tell people that early on, even from a young age, right, growing up, the Saturday morning cartoons, the Super Friends were on with the Hall of Justice, so Batman mm-hmm. and Robin and Superman and Wonder Woman and Flash and Aquaman, and I was aware as a uh, youngster that they were all celibate, right? They weren't married. Mm-hmm. They worked with a common purpose and mission. They lived together, right? It's religious life mm-hmm. that they were, in some ways, a secular version of religious life. Yeah. Uh, so an attraction to that, I suspect also that the call to religious life was 
with three older brothers, we're very close. There are four of us in five years, and a sense of being a part of that community, I suspect, was mm-hmm. part of the mediation for this call of being a part of some kind of group like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but that just continued. You know, I, was in, I came here to Notre Dame to study biology. Mm-hmm. Uh, and friends of mine said, oh, you're going to be the one that's going to marry us. And if you fast forward from then to the future, but now in the past, you know, I've done the weddings of maybe yeah. five or six of those college friends. And, yeah. Um, now let's tie this back into the, the science part. Mm-hmm. Um, well, coincidentally, you mentioned that you had come here to be a biology Right, major. so I was trying to weave that in. Uh, I came here thinking about doing microbiology. When I was young, I thought of being a doctor. Mm-hmm. That probably changed in high school to be microbiology, you know, find a cure, help people. Mm-hmm. Um, but when I was, my, one of my earliest memories is before we had moved to that new house where I had this eight-year-old moment of insight, one of my first memories is of a, outside of our front yard on the sidewalk that leads up to the front porch, there's a spider web. And there's a spider that had, a bee, a honeybee, had become entrapped in that web. And mm-hmm. this bee was rolling it up in its, in its, mm-hmm. with its spinnerets. And, and so I think it's, I think that's emblematic just for who I've been, just a, a fascination with the beauty of God's creation and the wonder of it. And mm-hmm. that was certainly nourished by, I remember my uncle would give me these, uh, they're National Geographic, but they're books on different organisms or aspects mm-hmm. of nature and, and that just kind of whetting the appetite, but just always being attracted to the, the mystery of creation to, to look up, to see what stars you could and the, yeah. In, in outskirts of Baltimore. <laughs> Baltimore, yeah. Um, yeah. But to think, you know, just to ponder, and to, I just remember, you know, eight, nine years old, thinking like, you know, where's that go? Or what's, how's God connected with this? Or, you know, the origins of life. And so all those questions have always been connected to the divine for me. Mm-hmm. So that from the earliest days, I've always just had this. I was always good at math and science, though there's never a subject that I've met that I didn't like. Yeah. Um, but those were ones that were ones where I excelled. Yeah. And so I came here to Notre Dame to think about microbiology. And then after my, during my freshman year, I stumbled across a advertisement in the biology building, Galvin, for a summer um, program that the biology department has out in nature, up in the, up in the land of Lakes, Wisconsin, the upper peninsula of Michigan. That's an ecological research center. Okay. Called UNDERC, University of Notre Dame Environmental Research Center. So I applied for that. During my freshman year, but they rarely would accept freshmen, so I did it after, got accepted after my sophomore summer and then spent three glorious summers mm-hmm. up at Undurk. Mm-hmm. And just to encounter a place where there's loons calling at night, you see the northern lights, all the mm-hmm. stars that are in the sky. Yeah. Um, lots of mosquitoes, and just to be a deer, <laughs> yes. an albino deer. I mean, to, but just to enter yeah. into the first class was taught by George Craig, who had since died, and it was aquatic insects. The whole mm-hmm. summer was aquatic ecology. Yeah. Different aspects of that. Six courses interspersed with four weeks of independent research, so ten weeks up there. The mosquitoes were an integral part of the course. <laughs> Very much so. Though after, toward the end of the summer, or even in subsequent summers, right, you get used to them, and they're not as bad. Yeah. But, uh, but just on the technology side, right, this was before cell phones, so there's one phone on campus yeah. that was a half mile away from where we lived, and you had to walk down in the dark if you wanted to call, yeah. right, at an hour that it was cheaper. Yeah. Um, you know, you didn't lock doors. You just, oh, yeah. it's just very much human community, natural community, mm-hmm. community, community of the divine. I mean, all that was just, that really formed me to be an ecologist. And that began kind of the academic study of 
ecology. Mm-hmm. So most of my work here at Notre Dame as an undergrad, as a biology major, was in ecology and particularly aquatic ecology, doing works in mm-hmm. some local streams nearby, and that led to my first academic paper mm-hmm. when I was in grad school, where I went after Notre Dame to Virginia Tech. Okay. In Blacksburg and got a master's in aquatic ecology, and I studied small mm-hmm. mountain streams of. I was going to say going to Virginia Tech, and that's definitely a place to be out. And I mean, of course, Virginia Tech's a huge, huge campus, but you don't have to go very far to be. Yeah, out. right in the Blue Ridge Mountains. Yeah, our um, field right site was six hours south of there, in the southwest corner of North Carolina, just about four sure. miles north of Georgia. So just beautiful Appalachian Mountains. Doing work there. I spent a summer out in Flathead Lake in Montana and did research up in Glacier National Park. Oh, yeah. Uh, and all of that was interconnected with faith. Um, so there's never this dichotomy. It's, it's always been a baffle to me, like how mm-hmm. knowing what I know about faith and about science, like why would these ever not go together? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so when I finished Virginia Tech, I came back to Notre Dame for the seminary mm-hmm. and then was ordained in the year 2000, which makes the math easy for anniversaries. That's right. That's right. Yes, and, 20 uh, is coming up. Things coming up. We'll have to. We'll have to get you something. Yeah. So I have to send you a present. <laughs> I, I thought that I always, you know, being a Holy Cross priest, which was the only order that I looked mm-hmm. at and applied to. Okay. Um, you know, their their emphasis on teaching and working with mm-hmm. colleges and universities and the youth was attractive to me, and I always thought I wanted to teach, mm-hmm. and I always thought I would teach biology, and so the congregation sent me to. I applied to the University of Minnesota to become an entomologist. Okay. which is the study of insects. Yep. And I was going to name new species of caddisflies, a type of aquatic insect. Ooh, there you go. From the tropics. They're kind of like butterflies, but not as colorful. Yeah. And after my first year there, I withdrew. Uh-huh. And I left all that glory behind of naming new species to become a theologian. Right. So instead of being, <laughs> instead of being a, a scientist who thinks about God, I'm a theologian who thinks about insects and water and trees and, yeah. and, and yeah. things like that. So. Yeah. I taught at the University of Portland for a year, mm-hmm. applied for graduate programs in theology, went to Catholic University and mm-hmm. got a PhD in systematic theology, Okay, and then returned to campus here in 2012, yeah. basically been here since then. Mm-hmm. That takes us up to, basically up to this point, yeah. um, mm-hmm. where I've Someone. been. This, this is my third year in the Center for Theology, Science, and Human Flourishing, mm-hmm. uh, and teaching those classes and doing some research and yeah. giving talks and podcasts and yeah. things. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Because, as, as they say, everyone everyone these days is doing a podcast. But yes, um, someone from the inside, you know, can maybe uh, spell out for me. You know, the in, in, as it's understood con- in contemporary academia, the difference between systematic theology and the other branches of Catholic theology. Sure. So, systematic theology used to be called, and maybe still is in Europe, called dogmatic theology. It's, it's okay. that branch of theology that deals with the great dogmas of our faith, mm-hmm. Trinity. Uh, Christ, Christology, mm-hmm. the Church, Ecclesiology, Ecclesiology. the Sacraments, um, mm-hmm. the human person, the human like anthropology, theological yeah, anthropology, anthropology yeah. sin and grace. Those all those big concepts would fall under systematic theology Lots compared to ethics, yeah. um, history, or liturgy, scripture, and scripture, yeah. patristic type stuff. Yeah. So it's it deals more with the the great mysteries of our faith. Yeah. Yeah, and of so, course they're all interconnected. But yeah, yeah. So, so dogma. Yeah, the the parallel between that and dogma. And of course, you would want you want a very thorough philo- philosophic background in order to do that. Right. It would be important to have. Uh, in, in my dissertation, which was sadly not on science and theology, though I wanted it to be, it got steered in a different direction through <laughs> various conditional situations. Yeah, um, that does happen. Uh, yeah. So that's there was a lot of philosophy in that, a lot of analytic philosophy, which okay. is not my. Desire nor my forte, but mm-hmm. if one slogs through, 
there's a, that. There, there's a certain joy in you know abandoning one's uh, doctoral dissertation and, and striding briskly off in another right. direction. <laughs> and also, just to, to, when you talk about you know, the need for philosophy, I think that also raises. It's related to this conversation today because yeah. philosophy is what we can know through natural reason and understanding, yeah. and theology is what we know and reflect upon by divine revelation received in faith. And that yeah. faith and reason are not at odds with one another, right? Just right. as theology and science, via reason, are not at odds with one another. Right. It's the one truth is God, who's the source of all. Yeah, yeah. It's like if you go out into the field and you observe X, Y, Z, and Q, you know organisms interacting with each other there has to be a way for that to happen because you've seen all four of them there must be a solution mm. as opposed to you know trying to take one i mean um trying try, trying to say take uh, flood geology as an explanation for you know some geological phenomenon where you you're going to railroad it to your own your own interpretation of the text of genesis seven and eight right. um that that's you know then that's going to that's going to override you know any inconvenient observation that you might actually make. Just like <laughs> the truths of divine revelation, we can't simply you know if we set aside if we just start picking and choosing which ones to set aside, we're not in a very intellectually honest exercise anymore. Um. So yeah. So um. What I as as we were mentioning before we started the podcast. Um, reading a little bit about your science theology and creation course so could you uh sort of summarize for us what your approach is there yes very much so so this class is usually for about 30 students sign up for this okay the classroom when i hold 30 so it's usually about 30 students Mm -hmm. Um, and it's divided into two parts the first part of the class is who is god as creator Mm -hmm. what is this thing we call creation because it's very much a term of art and it can be used in, in many ways, right? We can equivocate, and we have many different meanings for what creation oh, yeah. is. So it's to important do. to define what we mean by creation, so we spend a yeah. lot of time on that. And then how does God act in the world? Right? What mm-hmm. is the relationship between divine action and, and natural action, natural causation? Yeah. So I look at that in four different areas. We look at scripture first, mm-hmm. um, tradition, patristics, or the, the early fathers of the church, and then I end up with the medieval period, primarily looking at Bonaventure, but with the real focus being St. Thomas Aquinas, who mm-hmm. is kind of the, his conceptions of divine and natural causation mm-hmm. and what creation is, is the real linchpin for mm-hmm. for the class. He, he, he thought those out and carried them out to a very high degree of sophistication. Yeah, very much so. Yeah. People will say that, well, the main thing about St. Thomas is his view of creation. He's really, that's what he's doing. Mm-hmm. And so then we, that's the first eight weeks of class, and then we have a mid-semester break for a week, and then after that break, we apply those concepts to three contemporary areas. Cosmology, Big Bang, about four days on that. Mm-hmm. Um, the largest section is on evolution, maybe mm-hmm. seven or eight classes on that. And then we end up with about four or five days on looking at ecology. Mm-hmm. And some of the recent people, from John Paul II, Benedict, and, yeah. and Francis, looking at yeah. ecology and our relationship to the natural world. Mm-hmm. So that's the in-class part. But I think what really makes the class have the impact it does is uh, there are two laboratory components to mm-hmm. this theology class, which might strike some as curious. Um, now, as a biology major, right, we, as an, particularly as an ecologist, right, we, as I look out my window, we can see St. Joe Lake, one of the two mm-hmm. kettle lakes on campus that are left behind by the icebergs 12,000 years ago. And we would go out on the lakes and take samples right, in our aquatic ecology class. 
our general ecology class, we go out in the mm-hmm. woods, we go to the, we go to the sand dunes, we go to, you go out into the world. So I figure if my students are going to learn about creation, they should be out in it. Yeah. And so there's a, there's an astronomical lab component and a terrestrial component. Mm-hmm. The cosmological or astronomical is, it's really just a fourth grade project, which is I just get them a sheet of paper mm-hmm. with a calendar, one month calendar on it. And for 28 days or 29 days, they just track the month, the moon for yeah. one month. And all they got to do is the if they can find it. Now, yeah. we haven't seen the moon but three <laughs> days out of the last two weeks here because it's so cloudy. <laughs> yeah. And they just track it and just yeah. sketch the phase of the moon and see yeah. if there's any other stars or planets. Like if anybody saw this morning, amazing crescent moon right in between Venus and Jupiter this morning. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. Yeah. And the sky was pretty clear this And it was morning. very yeah. clear. Yeah. It was just gorgeous. Freezing yeah. cold. Um, yeah. But it Wonder leads students to when they have to re- write a little reflection piece on this. And they'll say things like, I never knew the moon could be out during the day. Yeah. They're so disconnected. Maybe you don't know, yeah. but most yeah. people are so disconnected yeah. from. Yeah. They're just always looking down at their phones or in yeah. electronic devices that they don't yeah. often. Or people say, yeah. "I look up more now," and I now understand yeah. how the moon cycle works. And yeah. and um, but I think it's most important just to get them looking up. Right, they're they're yeah. um, getting out of themselves, and and yeah. whether during the night or during the day. Yeah. And then the terrestrial project is the main project, which is for 11 weeks. They pick a place on campus that has a tree in it, of which there's many, and then mm-hmm. each week for 10 to 15 minutes, they just go out to that place and just observe. Mm-hmm. What do you see? What do you hear? What do you smell? And then I ask them a question that's related to what we're doing in class, and they have to write a short paragraph response to that, and they submit mm-hmm. that to me every Friday. Mm-hmm. And the journey that they are on, because at the beginning they think, I also give them some quasi-scientific stuff to do, like what's the angle of the sun above the horizon, what's the compass direction of the sun, and over 11 weeks that is going to change, and hopefully mm-hmm. they, can, they can track that. But they quickly realize that it's, there's more to this than just looking at a tree or looking at what's out there, because they all of a sudden realize, because I don't want them to be looking at their phones and being on laptops and stuff, and just like, right. I can just... So common responses are, Midway through, it's like, in the beginning, I thought this was really hokey. Mm-hmm. But I've come to enjoy this as the best tar- time of my week because I can just sit and be quiet. Mm-hmm. So it's teaching them attentiveness. It's teaching them how to be in silence and stillness, which are these conditions for prayer. Yeah. Right? Some people say, I, I, can, I can just pray out here. I want to continue doing this after this course ends. Yeah. Um, I can now recognize different kinds of trees. Before, they were just trees, and now I can actually recognize different kinds. Mm-hmm. Um, again, it's, it's just getting them in touch with something other than themselves and what we create or what we make or manipulate yeah. and to get in touch with what God creates and yeah. um, and how to just encounter from a faith perspective, right, the sacramentality of creation, which is that the world we can see with a double vision. Um, we can see things in, a, in its particularity, right? This is a tree. This is a basswood tree. But with eyes of faith, you can see it as transparent to the divine, right? It's a window that God is the creator of this. Mm-hmm. And this goes back to our understanding of what creation is. The creation is fundamentally a relationship of dependence upon God for existence. Mm-hmm. That God is being and God, everything else participates in God's being. God mm-hmm. bestows being. That's what creation is. It's, it's this establishment of a relationship that things have to God. Mm-hmm. And so if that's the case... Then anytime you see anything, it's related to God, mm-hmm. and specifically to Christ, the Word through whom all things come into being. Yeah. And so 
on the first day of class, I show some pictures and ask them questions like, how old is the universe? Mm -hmm. What kind of tree is this? What's the phase of the moon? Yeah. How many species are there on the planet? And then I usually use a blue dasher dragonfly, mm -hmm. a little blue dragonfly, and I say, what's the relationship of this dragonfly to Jesus Christ? And there's just like <laughs> blank looks, like, what are you talking about? This is like new age or something. Yeah, 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 yeah. But it's, but it comes from basically uh -huh. the New Testament and John's gospel and Paul's letter to the Colossians that yeah. everything is created in and through the word. And that word became incarnate of the Virgin Mary. Yeah. And so creation and redemption always go together. They're yeah. not to be separated. And this one plan of salvation that God has for creation and humanity, it's, right, it's all of one piece. And you can't, things go bad when you separate these. Yeah. I use the example of a DNA molecule, right, the double strands. You can, yeah. you can denature it with heat or acidity and the strands yeah. come apart, but you can re-anneal them, you can bring them back together, and you get a living, right, that helps with life. And I think that's yeah. the same way with how do we understand how God acts? And it's through creation and redemption. He doesn't leave creation behind. He, he transforms it and, and perfects it. And so I think that's just one example of how the created world, the first article of the creed, we believe in God the creator, is not separate from the second article, Christ the redeemer. Yeah. These are, these are yeah. all of one piece. Yeah. And that, that, that whole, um, that, that exercise of taking, you know, this specific dragonfly and asking how it's related to Jesus Christ is one of those things that puts you know, we have so many generalities that we trade in and we don't, you know, until you've actually seen specifics, until you've seen specific examples actually play out. I mean, of course, you know, in, in my own experience, I fall on through my own sort of interior pessimism that I, you know, that I'm an heir, that I'm heir to, that I've been fighting against my whole life of, you know, just not expecting things to work out. And I think, you know, I, you know, um, just like, uh, my professor, uh, Jill Pasteris, we talk, that I talked to back in November. Um, she also, you know, she grew up in a Christian household. You know, she's just never gone through a phase where she significantly questioned, you know, whether science and faith were on these completely different tracks. But I did, and listening to you and sort of ruminating on that, I sort of, you know, I wonder if some of it is not simply that I just don't expect things to work out properly. Mm -hmm. And so when I read the Bible and I read the first few chapters of Genesis, and then I would open this, from, in my case, I sort of, you know, boil it down to this pop-up book of the universe. It's a phenomenally intricate book from the 80s that I, I still have. Took a photograph of it for the podcast, you know, made that one of the early um, shots. That, you know, there, there's no way to reconcile these things. I see differences. Oh, it must all be over. There's no way to reconcile these things. And, you know, I don't know how, how many people that describes their experience, but I bet I'm not absolutely the only one. Um, but, that, but but to be able to see that actually work out, to be able to see, and, and to even to just do it in the mundane examples you're talking about, going out and seeing, you know, sure enough, this tree is going to grow this shape of leaf right. again this year. Yeah. <laughs> right. it's, it's, God creates natures, yeah. and it's the basswood tree has a basswood nature, and it does the things that basswood trees do, right? It's, the nature yeah. is this kind of uh, active form of its essence, that it's doing that kind of thing. You can identify it by, yeah. by that. And, yeah. Um, and so there's a grammar, Benedict, I, I love this image of grammar. Benedict Sixteenth uses this in terms of like the grammar of creation. Or mm -hmm. So, right, if you want to have a cactus plant flourish, right, you don't water it every day. Right. right? You treat it according to its nature. According to its there's nature, a certain yeah. grammar that, yeah. that compre there's, a, there's a logic to it or a grammar yeah. to it. And the same is true of the human person. Right? There's, mm -hmm. a, there's a grammar to us. There's a logic to us that's prior to us, mm -hmm. right? And so how do we, how do we fit ourselves and act in accord with that logic, that grammar. 
And so you can see that what happens when you don't, right? And so mm-hmm. my class on theology and ecology, when we look at the Great Lakes watershed and what happens when you <laughs> add certain things or do certain things in yes. the uh, in the watershed that surrounds and all the water flows in with with runoffs or pollutants yeah. and, and yeah. things, Think, right? The, things that, that could catch on fire. Things <laughs> things run awry, right? Things go awry, and the same yeah. is true with the human person and, and living the moral life. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Everything from the the very basic natural, you know, thinking about reading, say, um, reading Cassian and talking about the Desert Fathers and their experience, like, you know, you're a glutton if you eat a biscuit before 3 p.m. or something <laughs> like that. Those people weren't creating the Summa Contra Gentiles. You know, I bet Thomas Aquinas had to probably eat enough to maintain his, mm-hmm. you know, cerebral cortex activity in order to do theology. It's just, again, that's the grammar of, you know, some people are called to do one thing and called, some people are called to do another, but you can't simply railroad yourself into, you know, you can't simply by force of will do everything. You have to respect your own nature and you have to respect the nature of the, the things around you. So so that grammar of connectivity, of which really is kind of a force that gives uh, hope, uh, makes me think of another term that's important uh, in your uh, scholarship and in your teaching, uh, the Center for Theology, Science, and Human Flourishing. Is, is that really kind of what you've been getting at with, with the center and uh, uh, in, in fact that might be the great discovery uh, for a lot of these students that uh, not only uh, do uh, science and uh, faith go together and not only do creation and redemption go together but uh, theology and science go together with human flourishing it's, uh, it's something that is a very real connection right a lot of people are taken aback by this flourishing word like what, is, what does that mean yeah so I, I, I try and use the plant example like if you want a plant to flourish mm-hmm. and not to, to struggle right it's people understand that concept right you weed the land you, you mm-hmm. water it in the right way you give it fertilizer right and it's going to mm-hmm. it's going to do well it's going to flourish and so what's that mean for the human person and we're not going to we're not going to flourish if we're missing essential elements of our of our life right and I think if you take away theology, if you take away science, right, these are, I suppose we could flourish without science, but it would be simpler. But I think science in so many ways helps us understand right. Right, the world that yeah. God has created. God doesn't reveal everything about us. Right? He, right. he reveals himself. And that there are um, dinosaurs. There's just a talk, and I think it might have been Stephen Barr, another mm-hmm. person you had on the podcast show earlier, has talked about you know God's not going to reveal that. There's there's dinosaurs, right? That's that's for the human person to figure out yeah. these things. I don't know if it was Stephen Barr, yeah. might have been somebody else, but yeah. somebody else has yeah, used, used that kind of image that, that we can same. use our yeah. intellect yeah. to. Yeah. Right. God first reveals Himself in creation. Mm-hmm. Right. We don't know anything except through our senses. Right. There's got to be a world that we can perceive, mm-hmm. and then we're curious about like, well, why do things happen? And wonder is kind of the beginning of inquiry and philosophy and investigation and. Why are these things here? And we can use our natural abilities to to find these things out, and it, mm-hmm. it, it can mm-hmm. satisfy yeah. those those desires to to know. Yeah. But its knowledge is not an end unto itself, uh, um, right? It's it's ultimately how do we know God and mm-hmm. enter into a relationship with God mm-hmm. and to yeah. love God. So yeah. And and today's culture leads people to believe that the key to human flourishing, however they might define it. Is really science is to be found. No, this is just at, just at lunch today. I was having lunch with some of the other priests, and we were talking about they were talking about the new 
Neil Armstrong movie that came out. Yeah. First, first Man. And I haven't seen it yet, but mm-hmm. sort of like talking about NASA and space and, yeah. and uh, I'm losing my train of thought. We were, oh, science. And we came at the, the movie with um, Matt Damon. Okay. With him when he's on Mars and he's Martian. Maybe it's called just the Martian, yeah. where, where he has to. He's left alone and he has to yeah. survive for a year or two. And and he <laughs> yeah. uses a rather crass statement that I'll paraphrase for this podcast. So I'm gonna, yeah. We're going to science the heck out of this, right? Um, uh-huh. <laughs> and I asked one of the persons yeah. who had read the book. I said, yeah. "Does the book enter into any more of the humanity of this yeah. of this astronaut or Martianaut?" And to think about yeah. like what's it like to be alone? Yeah. On a planet by yourself, yeah. how do you not enter into despair? What's what do you have to do with loneliness, yeah. your relationships, yeah. your, your, your yeah. contact is so many millions of miles away, and yeah. or what do you what do you think about your own death? But yeah. none of that comes out, right? It's such a technocratic science is going yeah. to be the answer to things, and there's there's nothing more beyond that, it seems. And, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. That that is a. I, 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 of course, being a planetary scientist, I know a lot of people who really like that movie. But, uh, yeah, I have, I have not seen it myself. That makes me really want to go out and watch it and see, and, and read the book and see what the, to what degree that really deals with that. Because that's the, yeah, I mean, that's, that's the whole game, ultimately, is to live an integrated life where, you know, you're a human being engaging in this activity. Right, that's the important part, right? It's integrated. And I think that's the problem when you have someone who's more of a fundamentalist and is going to reject what the science of our day is telling us. Or if you're a fundamentalist scientist and saying that there is no God because evolution disproves God. Like, like, mm-hmm. Who tends not to have done a whole lot of that work themselves. If they, I mean, or if they have, they've done a very specialized piece of it and you know, haven't got it in a right. larger context. And so I think it's, it's just you're missing major areas of, I think, just how we understand how we know things, epistemology, mm-hmm. and yeah. how we know things. Um, no, and I think they're both yes. they're both fundamentalisms, and so the church has wisely, you know, rejected both of those, and yeah. and they're almost anti-fundamental in a way. I mean, you know, because you know you're rejecting a look to what's 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 the actual ground and the fundament, yeah, the, that's the, sort of, the sort of ball of factoids that you believe is your, is the most important thing to hang on to. You don't look at where the where they're rooted, where they come from, the epistemology of it. Right. My gosh, if I could get any dose of epistemology across when I was teaching Geology 101. This is this is how we came to know this. This is what's really interesting, not this list of facts. Please don't just memorize the list of facts. <laughs> As if I could stop that. This has been another episode of That's So Second Millennium with me, Paul Geesting, geologist and intellectual pilgrim, and my co-host, the journalist and consultant, Bill Schmidt. Be sure to check us out at tssm.podbean.com. We hope you subscribe and leave us a review via Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or Stitcher. As always, thanks for listening.